Hello everybody, this is Salil Tripathi from the Institute for Human Rights and Business and as part of our conversations with people on the theme of gender, business and human rights, I'm now talking to Laya Vasudevan. Laya is based in New Delhi and she is the director of an organization called Article 39 which works on dignity, gender, health rights and human rights. First of all, thank you uh, so much for joining us, Laya. My first question was about this very important epoch-making case that you had in India in 2014, which did significantly enhance uh, protection of rights of the transgender community. Can you tell us a bit more about that story? Sure. Thank you for having me speak about this, Salil. In 2011 and 2012, my organization did a series of public hearings across North India in uh, partnership with UNDP India. We also looked at regional partners across each of the cities and states that we worked in. These partners were community-based organizations, transgender organizations, hijra communities, local colleges, and whoever we thought was a particular stakeholder. Now, there were a couple of reasons why we did these public hearings. They were to serve as the foundation for the case that was going to be filed in the Supreme Court eventually. And we thought that there were some urgent issues that needed to be addressed. For example, there were significant gaps in established practices. For example, health-related, mental health, physical health, HIV prevention and care interventions. And we were looking at it both from an access and an establishment perspective. We were also looking at micro and uh, macro needs of the communities, but also going one step further and saying what were individual needs, hmm. what were individual mental health concerns, crisis intervention, or larger issues like so many reports of harassment from the police, drug alcohol dependencies, as they called it, and a significant lack of livelihood programs. We wanted to very clearly clarify the ambiguous legal status of transgender men and women with the uh, sex reassignment surgery. And um, we wanted to see what was available in India, who was using it, how expensive was it, and what was available in the public sector and what was, what was being used uh, from the private domain. And finally, we were very clear that we wanted to uh, work towards taking steps on a legal recognition of gender identity of transgenders and the hijras. Mm. And we wanted this to be done in consultation with the communities and other stakeholders. You see, getting legal recognition and avoiding these ambiguities in all of the procedures that were currently being followed in India, institutions that issued ID cards, for example, to transgender communities, we felt that all of this was connected to a very, very basic civil right. And it was a civil right that helped them access public services. It gave them a right to vote. It gave them a right to contest uh, elections. It gave them a right to education, inheritance, marriage, adoption. And it was these four public hearings held between November 2011 and May 2012 that for us laid the foundation to work towards the case that was filed in the Supreme Court. Now, the National Legal Services Authority of India has, as one of its charges, the capacity to take information that it receives, either in the form of a letter or a newspaper article, and turn it into a social justice litigation. So this is a legal body, or is it a government body, or is it an NGO? Nalsa. This is a constitutional body set uh -huh. up by an act of law. 
Right. And the National Legal Services primarily is the state's mechanism, if I may call it the state in a legal sense. It is the state's mechanism to provide free legal aid to people who cannot afford it, with specific reference to people who are extremely vulnerable. So the National Legal Services Authority took cognizance of this in 2012 and filed a case. But looking at it as a technical expert, we felt that there were several issues that needed to be addressed and several issues that needed to be enhanced when brought to the attention of the Supreme Court. We were very aware that this was a landmark case and um, the, that the issues uh, NALSA had presented could be uh, taken three steps further. Mm-hmm. So in 2013, we filed, along with two other petitioners, an application in the Supreme Court, basically saying that a lot of the issues that had come out of this public hearing that we had conducted in 2011 and 2012, mm-hmm. we said these issues have to be addressed. So I think the hearings went on until 2013. And in April 2013, the Supreme Court gave us a la- brilliant landmark judgment. What the judgment did was it looked at all of the petitioners' demands. Uh, the National Legal Services said that they were looking at a very, very vulnerable community that needed the court's interventions to look at to safeguard their rights. We spoke about the right to self-identify and to say that opportunities have to be made available in terms of access to schools, colleges, and health. Lakshmi, who is an eminent uh, hijra activist uh, in her own right, she spoke about the needs of the hijra community, saying that as a socially independent community, they had certain perspectives that they also needed to uh, bring to the court's attention. What the court did is, and I'm paraphrasing here, they very clearly said that the first thing that we were going to do is to recognize transgenders as the third gender, adding to the binary, male, female, and third gender, which meant any transgender person, irrespective of how they were born biologically, and depending on how they identified themselves, were able to choose by themselves individually who they were whether they wanted to classify themselves as transgender, whether Mm -hmm. they wanted to classify themselves as male or female. The court went one step further and said, you did not, a person who wanted to move out of this binary space and see themselves as a member of the opposite gender or identify themselves as transgender did not need to have surgery to do this. And they said that this was important because it was a legitimate, natural and constitutional right. And they said that this was the only just solution which could ensure that Transgender communities finally had access to these choices. But it was, in the longer picture, it was actually a justice to a society as well. And I think they laid out about six or seven very basic important things for state and central governments to do. They said that all transgenders, as I discussed earlier, could self-identify, irrespective of whether they had had surgery. They said they directed the state and central governments to take steps to treat them as socially and economically backward classes of citizens and to extend all manners of reservation that were available. So whether it was an educational institution or whether it was for public appointments. Then the state and central governments were also directed to pay particular attention to health-related issues. And close on to health, they identified issues like stigma and discrimination. They said that this is a community of people that has long dealt with social pressure, with depression, with social stigma. There was a very nice uh, part of it where they said any insistence for an SRS before declaring their gender 
was both immoral and illegal. And then the rest of it was issues like medical care, give them spaces in medical hospitals, give them separate public toilets and facilities, frame social welfare schemes that were specific, add them to schemes that were already available where they applied. And to say that basically take measures to understand how to help them an equal place in society. Now, I know that in a very theoretical way, this was some of the best orders we could have gotten from the Supreme Court. To anybody like me and to the hundreds and thousands of members in the trans and hijra community who have worked on these issues for 20 or 30 years across India, this was one of the best foundations that the Supreme Court could have laid down for them. After that, it became very clear that building on it was going to be the next step. So that's what I wanted to come to. You mentioned the discrimination part and this is exactly the area where business and the community has the biggest interface in terms of recruitment, in terms of promotion, in terms of leave policy, even simple things like the bathrooms that they might build within the within the facilities and so on. So in that context, Correct. what have been the practical implications for business and how receptive has business community in India, whether it is multinational or it is local, how has it reacted to it? I think one of the biggest forces that helped companies who were already willing to look at this was the judgment, where they could have had several impediments, perhaps in their own policies. This foundation became something for them to build on. I think eventually it becomes um, a will to want to do something, Salim. You can have any number of international statutes, you can have any number of uh, uh, laws and policies that, or jurisprudence for that matter, that are designed specifically for India. But at the end of the day, if companies are able to say, look, we respect and we stand for human rights, irrespective of who you are, it does not matter to us which community you come from, your vulnerability does not matter. And if they have a zero tolerance policy and a no discrimination clause in contracts and in hiring and anything, mm. I think those are the first few steps to take forward. Right. But having said that, to be able to get to an international company, for example, trans kids who have dropped out of school need to complete an education. They need to be able to follow their dreams and get into colleges. And these things have to be enforced as much. Mentorship programs in with trans kids who um, want to go into that line of work would carry a great deal of weight. In a sense, I think it's important for young people to have role models. And whether the role models that they choose are from the trans community themselves. And we have quite a few leaders who have walked the walk, talked the talk, and done incredible things, irrespective of which sphere of life they have chosen to excel in. I think all of that connects back to saying, all right, here we are, the environment is there, we have the policy, let's find this young person who's applying for a job, give them the support that they need, if that is what they want in the office. And then to go beyond talking inclusion talk, to active participation. And I think finally what I would ask companies to do, whether they're Indian or Spain, is to review their hiring policies regularly. Mm-hmm. See how many trans people have even appeared for interviews. There are gaps. And I think it would go a long way to helping address those gaps. Because after all, these are the people who are going to hire and create an equitable, equal workspace. How are Indian companies doing on the issue of bullying, you know, or harassment within the workplace? Because, you know, what you're talking on, at one level, it all makes sense that 
when you're recruiting yes. people, when you're building facilities, when you're giving leave for yes. medical purposes, the company yes. is treating everybody equally. But the company also has a duty of yes. care with regard to its staff. Yes. And uh, what is being done in that regard? See, the problem with an issue like sexual harassment at the workplace is that the India-specific law that we have um, yeah. is specifically aimed only at women. And this is something that has to be challenged. Mm -hmm. uh, we have to be able to say that the broader interpretation is that trans women, whether self-chosen or uh, with or without surgery, whether they're biologically women, because currently, if I remember right, the application is for biological women. Mm -hmm. And we would like to, though it is not overtly said, it is implied. Mm -hmm. And until and unless companies choose to take two steps beyond the current law and say, listen, we can look at policies that are slightly, uh, that are probably five steps ahead of the law. Mm -hmm. We can always wait for the law to catch up. If they're willing to find the space yeah. to create that kind of an equal platform where anybody who is harassed, irrespective of whether they're male, female, or trans, and keeping in mind that trans men and women are particularly vulnerable in these kind of spaces from bullying, from a variety of issues that they might face, it would go a long way. And I know that there are several companies already doing this. Until the law catches up, Salim, I think this is the best thing. And, and what starts usually at an individual level quickly becomes something that is a joint effort. That's uh, terrific to hear. All the best with your work. Thank you so much. Thank you very much, Salil. And I really hope that my trans uh, friends out there are able to basically be the trailblazers that they need to be. Thank you.